Welcome to the Sages Among Us. What makes a community great? Most importantly, it's the people who live and work there and are engaged in community life. The Sages Among Us focuses on those people, what they do and why they do it, and celebrates the leadership, time, and energy they bring to making a positive difference for all of us. And welcome to the Sages Among Us on a Wednesday evening. I'm Keith Porter, and my guest today on the Sages is Walter Bringman, otherwise known as Walt. You didn't even call him Wally, he said. That he was in charge of capital construction and facility operation at Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital until he recently retired. And at that point, he joined the board of directors of the Center for the Arts, and he managed a major remodel project to a very successful conclusion. So, Walt, welcome to the hot seat on the Sages Among Us. Thank you for having me, Keith. Absolutely. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. We're going to learn a lot more about you and uh, all about the new project at the center as well. But before we uh, get too into that, let me share a little bit more of your background. As a kid, you grew up uh, in your early years in Fairbanks, Alaska, and uh, then your dad had some medical issues, and then you, your family moved to the Bay Area where you uh, attended high school. That must have been kind of a culture shock. Uh, you said you actually got a chance to tour the Summer of Love in San Francisco. Wow, that would be interesting as a kid. Uh, you joined the Air Force. You got some electronics, avionics training. You then went back to school and got a degree in psychology. And then you became uh, involved in the healthcare industry. And at some point, you ended up in Nevada County at Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital. And uh, the rest is what we're going to talk about. So how's that for a quick overview, thumbnail sketch of your life? Does that work? It sounded like a, a thumbnail. <laughs> okay. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, early life stories. How did your family end up in Fairbanks? You, you were the youngest of the family, right, of the, of the siblings? Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, I was. It was a family of six with mom and dad, and uh, certainly I had two brothers, a sister, uh, all older, and I was the baby. And uh, they were post-World War. My dad was in the Army as a drill sergeant um, during the war, stationed in uh, Monterey guarding uh, a particular hotel that had artillery um, placements in it to protect the coast from possible Japanese invasion. Well, now that's an interesting, that's a little known factoid. We actually had people with gun emplacements on the coast of California, right? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, it uh, certainly the Japanese did make some uh, areas of, uh, we'll, we'll just say that they actually landed in Atu, Alaska. There was a skirmish there, and uh, they were successfully repelled. But they, they the American uh, military, knew that the coast of California would be exactly where uh, a possible invasion could happen. And as a direct result, they uh, stationed uh, gun emplacements, yeah. big artillery in particular. So then what took your dad to uh, your dad and your older siblings and your mom to Alaska before you were born? You were born in Alaska, right? I was born in Alaska. Actually, when mom got on the plane, she was pregnant with me. So dad was in Alaska working. He'd gone up uh, about a year prior to find employment. He'd uh, 
tired of life on the farm. He was a farmer who uh, ran away from the farm after the Depression because it was so difficult, and he ended up working in the uh, sawmills of uh, Oregon because that was actually easier, and easier, but no less dangerous. I mean, the danger level was significant, but, you know, that was a choice. Um, So he was up in Alaska. He'd secured a job as a power plant engineer, um, keeping the power plant running, and had purchased some property to develop. It uh, was completely completely undeveloped and sent for my mom, who was down here waiting for him with um, my two brothers uh, and my sister. My brother and sister were paternal twins. Um, we went up there and began to make a life, and you have to understand that they were somewhat like pioneer stock in that... Um, Dad bought, he, he, had, he was a man of modest means, he bought an old surplus uh, military army uh, tent that uh, they lived out of uh, in the, during the Alaskan winters oh. for two years before he had the basement built on the property. Now that's impressive. So that, that's, talk, that's talking about hardship, right? Wow. <laughs> um, you know, they were the, uh, the greatest generation. Uh, for a reason. They survived the Great Depression, and they survived World War II. They were basically good, classic American um, pioneer stock. And so challenges like that, especially if you're born on the farm and you were raised on the farm, you were used to hard hardships and hard work. I'm impressed. Well, now, you, you came along as the baby. You were born there. So were you the good child, or were you the one that kind of caused a little difficulty for the family, a little trouble? Ooh. <laughs> uh, um, conf- confession is good um, for the soul, Walter. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I think I was a good child. I don't know that I was the good child, okay. but um, I did a lot of daily chores um, as I was uh, old enough, uh, somewhere around... Five, I began to shovel uh, uh, coal to bring in to the uh, house for the hot water heater that kept the house warm during the winter. I'd shovel snow in the winter. Summer duties were out there in the uh, vegetable garden and the greenhouse, uh, keeping the plants going. We would grow significant amounts of vegetables because at the end of the growing season, we would harvest them and can them for the winter. Canning was big, big back then. Okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to mark you down as the good child. I think that qualifies as being the good guy. No, no big trouble. But uh, tell well, tell I us. Do have a, uh, a a little vignette to share with you yeah, about uh, me uh, being a uh, a silly child uh, throwing rocks over the house of uh, over the roof of the house and uh, having a great time for about 15 minutes, and then I noticed my dad was running around the corner. And his face was red, and he had a great big knot on his head because one of the rocks I'd just thrown hit him on his head, and I thought that my life was going to be over very quickly. All right, I'll put Fortunately, a... Fortunately, he was good-tempered. I'll put a check minus in that box about whether you were a good <laughs> kid or not. But you, you, yeah, you must have... Well, I tried to be... <laughs> well, well anyway. give us, give us a, uh, an example of how life would have been so different for a kid in Alaska than, say, those of us who grew up down in the lower 48. What, what was different about it? Oh, um, life in Alaska. Oh, my gosh. 
where where do you start? Um, so, referred to as the um, the last frontier, even in 1950, and it was a territory in 1950. I was born in a territory. I was not born in a state that happened in 1959, wow. where we shared the glory of being um, the last star on the flag, the 49th flag, for about a year until Hawaii came and stole it from us unceremoniously. <laughs> Um, but with that um, last frontier, it was also the land of the midnight sun. So you could have temperature swings of minus 40 degrees in Fahrenheit in the winters. You could have 95 degrees plus in the summers. And in the winter of 1962, there was a record low temp of minus 72 degrees. My dad went to work that uh, week that it uh, hung in there, and he got a little medal for it called the Polar Bear Club. Really? Oh, and it, <laughs> it was an effort because uh, it required engine block heaters. Uh, your car wouldn't start without it, and the tires on the, the cars would go square because of the intense cold. Uh, they'd lose their volume. And uh, it'd take about a, a mile before they'd become round again. <laughs> bump, 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 huh? Bump, 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 yeah. Um, Aurora Borealis, uh, an absolutely um, remarkable natural phenomenon. I saw it routinely throughout the winter in particular. And it's similar to a rainbow, only significantly more impressive in that it covers the horizon and it, it'll come in bands. Uh, sometimes two, three, sometimes ten. Uh, and then as it passes over you and goes to the other side of the horizon, the air crackles. Uh -huh. And the you can feel the static uh, discharge of the phenomena. It, it simply stops you in your track, even as a young kid, and you know you're seeing something. It's uh, well. very unusual. Well, there's a probably there are probably a hundred stories right. you could tell that would be fascinating, but we've got uh, only 20 minutes left, and we've got a lot more we want to talk about. So let's let's yes, let's move you out of Alaska, and let me first say to our audience that uh, you're listening to the Sages Among Us. I'm Keith Porter. My guest today is Walter Bringman. Uh, he was in charge of capital construction and facility operation at Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital, and he's now on the board of the Center for the Arts, and he just recently helped the center complete a remodel project very successfully. So he's a guy that's given a lot to the community um, here and other places as well. But let's uh, let's move you now as a teenager back to California, where you uh, I think your family moved to Martinez because of your dad's health. Um, any special memories of your high school years there? Uh, sure, certainly. Um, first of all, when Dad was diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis, um, I was 14 years old, and we went from basically happy working poor to county assistance, um, living on a medical disability given by the government. And um, so that uh, helped define what I was going to do in high school, which is have as much fun as possible, and still I needed to work. Uh, so I, I did both. I worked in high school, and I also attended high school. I um, I had a bit of culture shock because in Alaska, we all looked about the same. And it might have been something out of the Charles Dickens movie, the way we looked. Uh, there wasn't the emphasis on... Um, clothing. Uh, there wasn't the emphasis on knowing all the words uh, to be hip. 
So a lot of this it took time. And also Alaska in 1964 was um, basically Caucasian and we had Athabascan natives. When I came down here to Martinez, the home of uh, Joe DiMaggio, we had Italians, we had Portuguese, we had Latinos, African-Americans, and Asians, Asians, all in the big mixing, uh, melting pot. And this was all new to me. So that was a shock also, trying to um, navigate uh, these various groups. Although being kids, we all seemed to get along fairly well. Well, tell us about the, uh, you said you toured the Haight-Ashbury during the Summer of Love. That must have been a culture shock, too. What was that all about? So I was fortunate in uh, May of uh, 1967, we had a new transfer come into Alhambra High in Martinez uh, called Mark LeClaire, and he came from Balboa High in San Francisco. So he was urban cool, unlike anyone I had ever known. Urban he cool. He had a car. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, he was slick. Um, and he was handsome, and the, the he was in, okay? I, I was, like, hanging on, but... Anyway, that was fun. He had a car. He said, let's cut school and go look at Haight-Ashbury. Well, I'd been seeing Haight-Ashbury on the news, and I thought, wow, let's go see the happening. So we drove over to San Francisco, and it was one of those sunny days, and I was at the corner of Haight and Ashbury, hanging off the sign, looking down the roads, each particular road, Haight and Ashbury, and it was a sea of people. It was the most incredible sea of people I think I've ever seen before or since in that everybody looked different. They had tie-dye, they had long hair, they had short hair, they had mostly clothes, but some not so much. Um, there was a wine drinking, there was marijuana smoking, there was music. It was an incredibly peaceful event in 1967, which that was the high watermark of the hippie era. And after that, uh, the hate began to change significantly as the, the hippies moved out. But it was a remarkable scene to see all of those people. It took us probably, we had to park about a mile away in order to even get near it. Yeah. Wow. What, anyway. what an adventure for a kid from Alaska. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and then it, not. It really was. Not long after that, you had another culture shock, I expect, when you joined the Air Force for a tour of duty uh, during the Vietnam, Vietnam era. Uh, wh what did you do, and where did you go in the Air Force? Um, well, the Air Force was uh, a, a primary choice, and it all happened. I was on a waiting list to get into the Air Force because I was 19 years old and not going to college at that time, and I knew I was going to be drafted, and lo and behold, you turn 19 in uh, 1969 and six months later you're going to have a draft notice if uh, you didn't have any way out so you betcha absolutely so i got that and that's what opened the door for me to go into the military i uh, and when i say military i mean the air force where i had already uh, tested and uh, did well and i qualified for electronic training and um, it was uh, computerized airborne uh, navigational equipment so that's what I focused on in uh, Mississippi for a year and a half. And then I came out, I was permanently stationed at Travis Air Force Base uh, due to the arrival of the C-5A Galaxy. And uh, that required a huge amount of uh, support to keep it going. That was and the wor world's biggest, air, world's biggest aircraft for a while, wasn't it? Um, yes. 
and it is a remarkable piece of engineering. It is unlike anything that the Air Force has in its inventory. It, it's truly a, a super bird. Yeah. Well, um, so, but, but you, you, well, I was just going to say, you, you then, so your, your time was stateside, right, with the Air Force? And, yeah. And, and you got a chance to study clinical psychology at San Francisco State. Was that while you were in the Air Force, or was that on the GI Bill afterwards? And how did that work out? It was on the GI Bill afterwards is okay. how I uh, ended up doing that. And I uh, went into San Francisco State and um, went to Diablo Valley College uh, first for two years and then San Francisco State and entered into a clinical psychology program where I actually had an internship at um, the for, former residence of the uh, Archbishop of San Francisco. It had been converted into a three-quarter way house for emotionally disturbed adults. Oh. And that was something that allowed me to have the greatest appreciation for people who work in the field with mentally disturbed people. It, it was... Um, it almost changed my life oh. anyway. Well, yeah. you, but you didn't stay with that as a line. And I, I'm really curious. You, you have this air, great electronics training in the Air Force. You now have your degree in clinical psychology. Um, and take us from there to your career in uh, healthcare and in facilities for healthcare. So what happened is um, I needed to get a job. And... Uh, was a little un unmoored, untethered for a little bit uh, after college and began uh, applying for jobs. And I, first of all, ended up in the maritime industry uh, working on ocean-going vessels and their communications and navigation equipment. And I found that both the college was not as important as the electronics, but it came into play because I was interfa interfacing with people. So it gave me a level of understanding um, in the situations that I was in. And I would go on ships from all over the world. So I'd be talking to Danish people one day, Japanese the next, uh, Germans, uh, Panamanians. Uh, did you develop some uh, Did you develop some foreign language skills? No, you know, they had to as a result of their license licensing they had to understand English and right. we all spoke Morse code and that that was the language that was the common uh, radio language that's how the world speaks spoke at that time internationally was, was through uh, Morse code and I had to get a license to um, uh, do that uh, and that also allowed me to um, survey the equipment for safety of life at sea compliance, meaning when a ship goes out, it's safe to be on oh. from an electronic uh, communication navigation standpoint. Well, it's an interesting tapestry you're weaving in terms of your background in electronics and uh, psychology and your work and how, you know, how the, the, the people aspects of your training on psychology really did help you in your professional life. Uh, as you said, that's uh, it, it's quite fascinating. Uh, let me tell folks again, uh, you are listening to The Sages Among Us on KVMR. I'm Keith Porter, and my guest today is Walt Bringman. And he's in charge of, he was in charge of capital construction and facility operation at Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital. 
and he's now on the board of the Center for the Arts in Grass Valley, and he managed a major remodel project very successfully. So he's a, he's a community hero in my mind uh, for doing all of that. So um, tell me, uh, well, what, what then brought you to Nevada County, and, uh, and when was that? So from the maritime industry, uh, they were having problems, the maritime industry, in the, by the late 90s, they'd shrunk significantly, and the organization I was working for with International Telephone and Telegraph sold off the whole division, and I needed to find work, and I was looking for stability, and healthcare was going to provide that. So I ended up working um, as a assistant uh, chief engineer at a hospital, uh, in Richmond, California, and from there, the hospital in Marysville, Yuba City, Fremont Rideout Health Group, were about to build a brand new hospital, um, 100,000 plus square feet, and they needed a uh, director of engineering, and so I interviewed for the job and got it, and that's how I got up into Nevada County. I worked in uh, Yuba County, uh, Yuba and Sutter, and then I lived up here in Penn Valley where I live today. Okay. It, uh, allowed me to return to my roots of a uh, small town guy raising his family in a small town, which uh, has been just a superb experience. So did you feel qualified uh, for that job and, uh, you know, to be in head, head of engineering in that large new hospital? Was, or did you take it with some trepidation or were you ready to go? A little bit of everything. I think you, uh, one would be foolish to think that you understood just what you signed up for because usually there's some surprises as you enter um, employment with a new employer. And it was everything it was supposed to be and I was allowed full freedom to do what needed to be done in order to complete the project. So. I had great training in project management, uh, starting with the Air Force, and, and certainly uh, when I worked with uh, Siemens Medical Systems, I would install cardiac cath labs and be responsible from uncrating to turnover with the cardiologist. So um, in terms of understanding what needed to be done and how construction uh, worked, I had a good fundamental understanding. This was on a grand scale. This was from going into the dirt and doing grade beams right on up to the ceiling. Uh, when I say the ceiling, the fifth story and, and uh, completing the uh, elevator shafts and yeah. everything in between. So. Uh, so, it, was, uh, it was a wonderful experience. It was challenging. Soup to, nu soup to nuts, as they say, right? Wow, everything. Soup to nuts, yeah. Accurate description. So, and then what uh, what brought you and when to to Sierra Nevada Hospital here in uh, Nevada County? So I stayed with uh, Fremont right out right out until um, right after the 2000 um, year and did private private consulting uh, with uh, communication electronics for six years and. That took me up to um, 2008, where the economy was basically imploding. And my work was drying up in the Marysville area, and I would have to travel in order to um, continue with my private consultancy. And I really didn't want to travel anymore. I'd, I'd done enough. Um, 
so there was an opening at uh, Sierra Nevada. I interviewed for it, and I was uh, selected. Well, tell us in a thumbnail sketch, then, what you did at Sierra Nevada. I mean, you're facilities director, but what does that mean? I mean, you weren't building a new hospital, at least not from the ground up, right? No, 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 no. Um, so hospitals are some of the most complex structures that we, as human beings, build and operate. And if you think about the old adage of the Golden Gate Bridge, where when you're finished uh, with one end, you start uh, painting the other. Right. Um, hospitals always need maintenance. They are a uh, machine that never stops. They are literally 724. They operate 365 days a year. And they have a huge amount of machinery that makes them work properly. You have a lot of different systems. You've got your air delivery systems. You've got your air supply systems, pipe medical gas. You've got all of your uh, diagnostic technology you've got surgery or all of these things have specific uh, requirements it's like you have a dozen different um, business departments under one roof and in, in truth you do and there's a lot of um, regulatory activity surrounding hospitals to make sure that they're operating properly so not only do you get one side which is to keep it uh, running but the other side is to comply with uh, regulatory requirements that need to see documentation that indeed this hospital is safe to bring patients in it's safe to bring staff and um, it's safe to bring visitors oh thank 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 goodness for we have those standards well walter we're, we're getting close on time here but i don't want to okay. close this off without talking about the uh, center because i was on the board of the center for the arts with uh, dr brian evans the ceo now of the hospital and he told us about you because of your background in credentials in building construction and operation and that you're about to retire from the hospital so luckily for all of us in the community you joined the center board and you took over the planning and construction of the total remodel project uh, was it, what was that like for you, and uh, how has that facility turned out? Um, it was probably some of the most fun I've ever had in my life. Um, I wasn't working directly, meaning employed. So I was like a grand overseer, and I knew exactly what needed to be done because of all of my experience with facilities and complex facilities and and this facility is one of the most complex ones we have in our town today the sheer structure is one side of it the building envelope and all the roof but all of the electronics and all of the wiring and all of the lighting there are literally cabinets with electronics that drive all of that and the quality of equipment that we put in that uh uh, facility is just a testament to the uh, community's support for wanting to have something absolutely superb as a gift from our community to our community. Well, it's uh, it was an amazing project. I had my finger in it a little bit before you and uh, knew what was coming. And uh, fortunately, you you came on and did took took over and made the whole thing work. And it's uh, I and the community are very grateful for all that you've done with with making that happen. So, in if, our, in if our, I can add real quick, yeah. though, Keith, really really quick, I I entered at a place where a lot of work had been done. 
there were dreams that had been in place for years and years and years, and there, there had been a lot of thought. And, and certainly when I took over from you, it, it wasn't a blank slate. There were great things. So I, I didn't have to start from scratch. I had a great sense of direction of where I needed to go from where we had already been. Well, there were a lot of dreams and a lot of concepts and a lot of good ideas, but uh, nothing nothing on the ground, and uh, you made it happen, and we appreciate that. So in our last few seconds, Walt, what is it that makes you want to give this kind of service to the community? What do you personally get out of your work in the community? And we've only got uh, 30 seconds or so. Okay, so really quickly, it was having a job for most of my career that took up all of my bandwidth didn't allow me to do this. And when Brian Evans said, look, we've got something that might interest you, I said, I'm in because it was my chance to give back. I've had a good life and this was an opportunity to do something that will stand the test of time for many, many, many years. In fact, this this building will be here generations from now, providing excellent performing arts services to the community. Well, thank you for your service to the community. Uh, You've been listening to The Sages Among Us on KVMR. I'm Keith Porter. My guest is Walter Bringman, and he made the uh, Center of the Arts remodel in Grass Valley happen. So thanks, Walter, for all you do for the community and to our audience. Thanks for what you do to make our community great. 